Well, good morning. These last few weeks, we've been examining the life of King David, and uh, well, our default setting is to refer to him as King David, but these last few weeks, he hasn't been king yet. He hasn't been crowned. Today, that's all about to change. In our first week, we had the opportunity to look at a reluctant hero, that young teenager, David, who was thrust into the national spotlight as he took down a giant. His passion for God, his commitment to the promises of God helped him to put his trust in the Lord all day long. Yeah, Pastor Joe took us through some real giants in our lives, loneliness that we all encounter in our lives. And for some, they intimidate, some they conquer. But yet these giants can cause us to do some really boneheaded things. We do some really stupid stuff because of fear, because of loneliness, because of anger. And we're reminded to wait on God. We're reminded to be led by God not by fear and loneliness and anger. And then, of course, Pastor Drew took us last week to learn from Abigail and that her ways, the Abigail way, is the best way. You see, when we get even with a person, that makes us what? Even. We pull ourselves back to the point of where the person who we don't even like is. We're head-to-head with them. And we repay evil with evil, and that's not the right way. Abigail and David and Christ himself learned to repay evil with good. Now, let's be honest with ourselves. It's admittedly a lot easier on this side of the story, when we know how the story ends, to convince ourselves that, well, we would do things differently. We would live better. And we would make wiser choices. Situation. If we're honest with ourselves, we really don't. The answer is no. You see, the greatest test of our maturity is when we are given power, or we're given authority, or we're given influence. How we respond when we walk into a room, a conference room, a boardroom, a locker room, a classroom, how we respond when we realize that we have the most power says a lot about our character. I think the greatest indicator of our spiritual maturity is how we handle our power. Think of the outrage, think of the disgust when we see someone misuse their power, when we see someone leverage their influence for their own gain at the detriment of the very people they're supposed to be serving. How many politicians, bosses, parents, and community leaders make the news because they abuse their power, because they take advantage of the very people they committed to serving? Yet in contrast, think of the inspiration we get from leaders like Martin Luther King Jr., who we just celebrated this past week, who sacrificed so much for the community and for the cause. He committed to using his power and his influence for the good of others. He inspired thousands and later millions to help make right the wrongs of our culture. You see, when we see a leader who lays down his life or her life for the good of the people they serve, we're inspired. We get excited. When we see a leader say no to themselves, 
so they can say yes to the people they serve. It's a leader we can follow. But the truth is, we don't truly know what we would do in a given situation if we were handed the keys to the kingdom, given the title, or wore the crown. We don't know until we are handed those keys and that crown. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to 1 Samuel chapter 16, and we're going to catch a glimpse of when David actually shows up for the first time on the scene. But it starts out in chapter 16 with Samuel crying his heart out. The prophet Samuel, God's man of the hour, is grieving because he has just gotten word from God himself that Saul has been rejected as king. God's patience has run out. It's quite the blow because Samuel was the, only, was the one who anointed Saul as Israel's first king. Saul was the one that the people were looking for when they rejected God's leadership to be the answer to the needs of a nation, but he proved to be exactly what God had cautioned the people against. Power can easily corrupt, and that was the case for Saul. As God's patience for Saul had run out, his, it was time for a new king. And it won't be any of Saul's sons. It was time for a fresh start. God was going to start with someone else, again from the town of Bethlehem, from the town that would eventually be born the king of kings. And this was what he said starting in verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one. Test in the waters, you know. Wouldn't take the, good, the news too well. And so the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. So here's the plan. Basically, Samuel is to roll into town. He's supposed to hold a special weekend service, if you will. He'll invite various people from the town, and no one would know what was really going on. God would somehow kind of give him the nod, let him know what was supposed to be happening, and kind of pinpoint the next king of Israel. So Samuel did what the Lord said, and when he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? So what do you visualize when you think of an Old Testament prophet? Do you think of some half-crazed uncle living in the backwoods with an unkept beard living off of locusts and honey? Right? Do you think of some pacifist that's sitting atop the hilltop with a calming voice and spouting off poetic truths? That certainly wasn't the profile for Samuel. 
You see, if you flip back over to chapter 15, you'll see exactly why the town was afraid, why they asked if Samuel was... You see, Samuel's visits to towns weren't all warm and fuzzy. He was a prophet, and prophets predominantly speak truth. It can be hard-hitting. It can be a tough pill to swallow. And for Samuel, he was obedient to doing what God instructed him to do. And in fact, he was willing to do what Saul was too afraid to do, was unwilling to do. So the expectation with Samuel's visit is that he would somehow show up to Jesse's house, and God would somehow make it clear to Samuel who the next king was going to be. He would get kind of the green light from God. He would get the God nod. And so in verse 6, when he arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the, Lord, the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. He saw the firstborn, and the firstborn was kind of the go-to. It was the default in those days. But it wasn't what God had in mind. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. We're very familiar with that verse. But yet we make judgments of people all the time when we first meet them, don't we? I mean, we have anything else to go on. What is going on with that person as best we can. But yet God looks even deeper. And it's on what's on the inside that counts. It's what's on the inside that makes a man or makes a woman. We can put up masks, we can put up facades to project a particular image, but eventually our character shines through. You can only hide it for so long. And this should be a wake-up call for all of us. You see, you and I can be incredibly confident with what makes sense to us, with what we see or who we see on the outside, but it in fact can contradict God's very best. Let's continue on in verse 10. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to them, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen any of these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? Can you imagine how awkward that is? Right? I mean, here Samuel is, and, and here's the man of God. He hears from God, and he's in this tough spot because, like, he's supposed to get, like, the God nod. He's supposed to hear from, from the Lord on who the next king is, and it's like, nope, 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 nope. I mean, like, you're getting down to number seven, and it's like, did I mess up? Like, am I hearing from God, right? Am I going to, like, tuck tail and run because this could get bad me you've got someone else hiding all right some other son because this isn't we don't have it we don't have the answer yet and thankfully jesse answered there is still the youngest and he is tending the sheep he's doing his chores all right samuel said send for him we will not sit down until he arrives the party won't get started until we get this sorted out and jesse had one more son david And even though Jesse was told that the most famous prophet of the day was going to be coming for a visit, and he was to gather all of his kids, he left David out. Ouch. How would you like to be that son? How would you like to be Jesse making that mistake? You got to just wonder what he was thinking. 
But in verse 12, he says, so he sent for him, that's David, and had him brought in. And he was glowing with health and had a fine appearance. So he still looked good. He wasn't a dog for a king, all right? God looks deeper, though. God looks at our character. And then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him. This would be young teenager David. Maybe he's about 12 or 13 years old, all right? And he's got this old man coming up to him with a horn of oil, dumping it on him. Awkward. But maybe for a middle schooler, he was just loving it, all right? So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. Picture this. One of the most popular men in the country comes into town unannounced, invites you and your family to join him along with the city leaders for a special event. You You don't know the purpose of the event, but during that time, that famous person puts a spotlight on you. He calls you out, declaring something great and unique about your life to all those around you, to your mom and dad, to your big brothers. And then he packs up his stuff and he leaves town. Like, could you imagine David just dripping there in oil and just thinking, that just happened? Like, what now? (laughs) Back to the sheep you go. You see, the text doesn't explicitly say that Samuel ever disclosed to David or to Jesse what he was doing, what his purpose was for the mission. Remember, Samuel was concerned to be. We just don't know. And understand that in less than two years, David would be thrust onto the national spotlight as he took down a giant named Goliath. He would have saved a nation from humiliation and a lifetime of slavery. And for the next seven years, David would be in the good graces of King Saul. He would excel in all of his assignments and all of his campaigns for the king. He would have the opportunity to marry one of the king's daughters and even become best friends with the king's son, Prince Jonathan. For David, in those seven years, he was on the top of his game. Things were going well on the surface. He just fit right. David to flee for his life. And then for the next eight years, the would-be king of Israel had no kingdom. He was on the run, and he struggled. This is where David struggled so much, where his loyalty was tested. How is God going to move him from where he was to where he needed to be? The only way to reach the throne is if Saul is removed, if Jonathan is removed. 
And Saul was not going to relinquish his throne on his own. It would have to be taken from him. We need to understand that one thing. We need to understand what David understood. That the kingdom of God was bigger than David himself. We need to understand what David understood. And David understood that it was God's will in God's way and in God's time. There was more going on than just one particular person and one particular throne. God didn't need David's help in fulfilling the promise. Instead, God needed David's character. He needed David's character to be intact for the day when he would be on the throne. You see, it's what's inside a person that matters. Because God looks at the heart. Take Saul's life or not was real. And it was so real, it would smack him in the face. In 1 Samuel chapter 24, you see, Saul is on a campaign, not a campaign to defend the nation against attacking warriors or an attacking nation. He was hunting down David, who was a fugitive, who was running for his life. And it had been a tale of kind of cat and mouse, as David was just staying one step ahead of the king. But the king had grown increasingly headstrong in his determination to shorten David's life and perhaps secure the throne of Saul. Now, if you've read any part of the Bible or you heard this story growing up, you understand how phenomenal this next part is going to be. If this is new to you, well, buckle up. Hang on. Because one of the amazing things about reading the Bible is how raw and truthful and honest it is about life where other literary sources can often kind of gloss over the truth or leave certain things out, the Bible keeps it incredibly real. The parts you would like to edit if it was a story about yourself, well, these happen to be included. So if you haven't been reading it, I would encourage you to do just that. Pick it up and get in that habit. In chapter 24, with all the marching and need to be timing and spying that we eat, people need to sleep. People need to, well, take care of what they ate, if you catch my meaning. And in chapter 24, we we see exactly that, that King Saul needed a pit stop, all right? And so for a little privacy, the king enters the mouth of a cave nearby to use the facilities to take care of business. But what the king doesn't realize is that David and his men are in the same cave, only further back in hiding. It's about to get awkward. You see, David's men can't believe their eyes. Not because Saul is in an incredibly vulnerable position and probably going to be caught with his pants down, but because they see God's providence in this. You see, David's men see this as God at work in David's life because they understood by then that David was supposed to be king. And it would be so easy for David to sneak up and nab the throne to take out Saul. And David was still such a popular character and a national hero that he could easily end Saul's life, take the throne, and no one would put up a fight. The men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hand for you to cut off a corner of Saul's robe. 
David couldn't bring himself to killing the very man who had been hunting him down. It'd be self-defense. He would be right. He would be just in doing that in many people's minds. But you need to understand David's mindset. You see, David refused. David refused to replace what God had put in place. David refused to take matters into his own hand, to replace what God had put in place. He wouldn't cause harm or bring harm to Saul. So after Saul finishes his business, kind of shakes off the the toilet paper that got stuck to his boot. I know, gross, right? Saul continues on his quest. It's the real deal. But from the mouth of the cave, David emerges. Then he calls out to King Saul from a distance, May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me. But my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. David again refused to replace what God had put in place. Fast forward a couple more chapters, and in 1 Samuel chapter 26, we see another opportunity that David has to remove Saul and to snatch the throne. It's actually kind of one of those humorous, like, hold my drink and watch this kind of moments for David, right? You're like, you're not really going to do this. Well, here's how it basically went down. So in keeping one step ahead of King Saul, David would track where the king was, and he would move accordingly. And the opportunity came when Saul was camped out in the valley in the desert of Ziph. And with 3,000 of his train killers with him, King Saul was in the middle for a good night's rest. And David and his friend Abishai snuck down through the middle of the camp. And it was a spectacular feat. And there in verse 7 of chapter 26, it says, So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there was Saul lying asleep inside the camp with his spear stuck in the ground near his head. Abner and the soldiers were lying around him. And Abishai said to David, Today! No, he didn't say it loudly. Right there in the middle of 3,000 trained killers, okay? He probably whispered, right? Today, God delivered your enemy into your hands. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I won't strike him twice. The one person that was separating him from the throne. This time, though, the offer was even better because Abishai was willing to do the dirty work. He understood that David didn't want to lay hands on Saul, but Abishai was more than willing to. And he would be humane. He would make sure that Saul wouldn't wiggle. But David said to Abishai, don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on God's anointed, on the Lord's anointed, and be guiltless? The Lord himself will strike him, or his time will come and he will die, or he will go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now get the spear.
I had not met him before. Once again, David refused to replace what God had put in place. King Saul and his son Jonathan eventually do die in battle. Sorry, spoiler alert. Should have said that in advance. But what's so remarkable about David is that he mourned the death of Saul and of Jonathan. He grieved for the man who was attacking him, who was causing him pain, who was causing him suffering. His heart broke for those that opposed him. And the question for us is, would our character allow us to do the same? When bad stuff happens to the people that you dislike, to the people that hurt you, the people that stand in opposition to you, when bad stuff happens, does your heart break for them? When they go through loss, when they go through heartache, do you cheer, do you smile, or do you grieve with the same character of David? Of the 12 tribes of Israel, Judah immediately proclaims David as their king. He was one of their own. But the 11 other tribes declare one of Saul, Saul's other sons as king. His name was Ishbosheth. And with a name like that, you'd want to declare him king too, because that's a cool, hard name. Ishbosheth? Come on. For the next seven years, there is a fight between the house of Saul and the house of David. The struggle continues, it doesn't get better. But eventually, two, of, two men from within Ishbosheth's own home murder him in his sleep. Now, here's the deal. Since they didn't have smartphones back then, since they didn't have Polaroids back then, the only way to provide proof of death was, well, to either drag the entire body across the land, all right, which is not an easy feat, or what they did in this case is they take off the head and they transport just the head. And in 2 Samuel chapter 4, we pick up, they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, your enemy who tried to kill you. This day the Lord has avenged my Lord, the king, against Saul in his offering. Such an interesting take on things. But David had a different take. And David answered Rechab and his brother Baana, As surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me out of every trouble. <laughs> as surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me out of every trouble. As surely as the Lord lives, the Lord who has provided for all my needs. As sure the Lord who has, who has delivered me out of every trouble. When someone told me Saul is dead and thought they were bringing good news, I seized him and put him to death. That was the reward I gave him for that news. How much more when wicked men have killed an innocent man in his own house and on his own bed, should I not now demand his blood from your hand and rid the earth of you? So David gave the order to his men, and they killed them. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in Abner's tomb at Hebron as a sign of respect, as a sign of honor. David understood that he didn't need to take that which God had already promised to give. God didn't need his help. God was faithful. This is the part where David gets to stand tall because he kept his character intact. 
You see, after the death of Ishbosheth, the other 11 tribes declare David as their king. He is now the king of a united nation. All 12 tribes of Israel are under his authority. And now it's payback time, right? He had the power. He held the keys to the kingdom. He wore the throne. And he had the opportunity to repay all the hurt, all the pain, all the grief that folks had caused him. See, that when all the, all the elders of Israel came, had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David as their king. David made a contract between those that he was serving and the Lord. He had committed, and kings don't need to make those kinds of commitments, but he had committed to be the leader that God wanted him to be. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned for 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah for 33 years. You see, even though King David was king of Israel, he was never confused about the identity of the true king, the king of kings. David understood that leadership is truly stewardship. And that he would be held accountable. That you and I would be held accountable. For Christians, this is a non-negotiable. It's not an option. We have no authority to push God out of the way. To power up. To get even. To take matters into our own hands. Instead, we are to use our influence to better the lives of those around us. Jesus demonstrated it for us. He took this from Old Testament to New Testament. In the gospel writings of John, and John being an eyewitness, he gives us some great insight into the life of Christ. And in John chapter 13, we read, it was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So Jesus is here at the Passover meal. He's celebrating with his disciples that commemoration of Israel's deliverance from the bondage in Egypt. And for the past three years of ministry, Jesus was being persecuted and hunted down by the very people, get this, who were trained to recognize him, who were on the lookout for the Messiah. They were looking for the king of kings, but they missed it. Like David, Jesus was anointed but not recognized. Like David, Jesus established a covenant but his included the entire world, and it was ratified in his own blood. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Verse 4. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. You see, this is what compels us as Christ followers to lay down our own crowns. And to let go of the thrones we feel belong to us. Jesus had the power and he had the authority. Even without the crown. Yet he knelt down to serve. He said in verse 14, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, 
you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done. You see, when you and I feel too good how we act when we realize that we are the most influential person in the classroom, in the locker room, in the boardroom. You see, we've all been handed the keys already. We have titles and we have crowns. We are mothers and we are fathers. We are husbands and we are wives. We're managers and owners and captains. We're administrative assistants and schedulers. We're foremen and we're officers. We all need to follow the character and the restraint of David, the great king. We need to lead others as Christ led us. And with these closing words from Mark chapter 10, verse 45, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for an example like David. And Lord, I would pray that you would do what I cannot do, that your Holy Spirit would speak to each person here, that every single one of us would hear you loud and clear. God, that you would pull back the curtain in our lives and show us areas where we still remain on the throne, where we've abused our power our influence, our authority. Or Lord, maybe we just have the opportunities that you've put before us where we can make an impact in someone's life. We could change the trajectory of their eternity if we are simply to be obedient to you and to serve those around us. Heavenly Father, help us to be great kings and queens within your kingdom. You are still ultimately the King of Kings. And we love you, Lord. Amen.